Well, it's good <clears throat> good to see everybody out on this uh, nice sunshiny day. Nice to have the sun out. We need uh, need to dry out a little bit. I think there's a lot of water all over, and so uh, you know uh, it was across my road uh, um, yesterday. It had receded this morning, so that was good news because I thought, well, I might not be able to get out without getting my boat out. And I don't have a boat to has oars, so I don't have a motor either. So here we are. Last Sunday we started talking about uh, tongue speaking. Uh, there's a a lot of religious groups today, they claim that they have the ability to speak in tongues. And there are some in the church who may wonder if it's possible to speak in tongues today. As I mentioned last Sunday, the idea of modern day tongue speaking only began in the 20th century. If you study church history from the 1st century up until the 19th century, you will find you will not find any mention of any church or people claiming to be able to speak in tongues after the first century. It doesn't appear. It just isn't there. It's only in the latter centuries has this thing called tongue speaking come into existence. We see in the first century, as was read for us, that on the day of Pentecost they spoke in tongues. And if you come back tonight, we're going to look at some of the well, all the passages that deal with the tongues. And I hope that if, I hope this subject is of interest to you, and that you'll come back tonight because we're going to look at all the verses that talk about tongue speaking. And so we're not going to be here till midnight, but we're going to look at all the passages because there's really not that many passages. And as I mentioned last Sunday, there's a lot that I have to say, and so I've divided it up into three sermons. And we're going to finish it tonight. But I thought that it would be a good idea to have this presentation, uh, these lessons. Uh, as I said, I'm, uh, you know, it's not really my style to get up and talk about history. But sometimes we need to look at history in order to understand where some of the things come about that are false teachings today. Last Sunday, we looked at a man... What did I do with it? Oh, there it is. Last Sunday, we looked at a man by the name of John Calvin. And John Calvin existed in the 16th century. And he believed... Well, he did not believe in speaking in tongues. Let's just make that clear. But there was a lot of things that he taught that allowed many of the other false teachings to come about. He didn't believe... or As I said, he didn't believe in speaking in tongues... But Calvin believed that since a man was a sinner, in other words, he came into this world a sinner, that it was impossible for man to obey the Gospel without the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, you couldn't even understand the Gospel unless the Holy Spirit empowered you to do so. And it was not possible for you to obey the Gospel unless God intervened in a special way to allow you to do so. That's what John Calvin taught. The ability to believe was the grace of God. The ability to believe was the grace of God. Now, I don't agree with what John Calvin taught because I realize that everyone has a choice. We all can obey the Gospel or we can reject the Gospel. That's the choice that we have. And God has placed that in our hearts to decide whether we want to follow Him or follow Satan. Jesus tells us there's only two roads that we can travel. 
The one is the straight and narrow, the other is the broad way. One leads to life eternal, one leads to eternal destruction. And so John Calvin says that we were predestined, that we have no choice in the matter. In other words, God in the beginning of time chose certain people who would be saved and certain people who would be lost. That would mean that when the world was created, He decided if you were going to be saved or you were going to be lost. Now, we know that God had a plan from the foundations of the world that if you obey His plan, then you're going to be saved. But that doesn't predestinate the person. That predestinates the plan. God has a plan. It's like last Sunday. If you wanted to go to Disney World, and I said I wouldn't go to Disney World, but if you wanted to go to Disney World and there was a bus over there in the parking lot and you were told, get on that bus and you're going to Disney World. Now, there may be other buses out there, but you have a choice. Do you want to get on that bus that's going to take you to that destination? Well, that bus is predestined to go to that particular location. And God says, if you follow this plan, this is where you're going to end up. If you follow what I say, then this is where you're going to end up. And each one of us has a choice as to whether or not we obey the Gospel. But several religious ideas came about because of Calvin's original doctrine. Have you ever heard anyone say, accept Jesus as your personal Savior and you'll be saved? Well, that idea, or that seed idea, comes from Calvin. After all, if God chose you in advance... All you have to do is accept the choice that He's made. And if you accept Jesus, you accept the idea that God has already chosen you, and that's where that saying comes from. And if you look through the whole Bible, from cover to cover, you will not find one one example, one verse that says, accept Jesus as your personal Savior. It's not there. You won't find it. But yet you'll hear people say that. And so is it scriptural to say that? No, it's not. That's a man-made invention. And that term comes all the way back from Calvin back in the 16th century. Another thing that comes out of Calvin's ideal is baptism is only a symbol. It's not for the remission of sin. It's not to put you into Christ. In other words, if God chose you in advance, you are saved from birth because of God's choice. And baptism is merely a symbol publicly demonstrating that salvation. That's all it is. You don't need to be baptized according to that teaching. It's not essential to salvation because God already has chosen you. Once again, I don't agree with that. Because we know that the Bible teaches that baptism is for the remission of sin. And it is baptism that puts us into Christ, so to speak, puts us on that bus. We've got to be in the church in order to be saved, the Lord's church. But since baptism, they say, doesn't do those things, it's only a demonstration of something that's already taken place. That idea comes from the teachings of John Calvin. That third idea comes from John Calvin is once saved, always saved. If your salvation depends on God's choice, you cannot be lost. There is nothing that you can do that that will cause you 
to be removed from that saved condition. And if you fall away, if you become unfaithful, well, that's just a sign that you've never chosen, uh, never been chosen to begin with. You weren't saved to begin with. And we looked last week at Simon the sorcerer. And we see that he believed, he was baptized, but yet he put himself in a condition where he could be in a lost condition once again. We have another individual, John Wesley. And as I looked at that picture, I thought, I'm glad I don't have to dress like that. John Wesley. He was not necessarily the founder of the Methodists, but his ideas grew the Methodist church and it was formed around the ideas that he had in the 18th century. John Wesley introduced the concept of emotionalism in religion. He placed a great emphasis on a conscious religious experience. And when he preached it, it said that a lot of people moaned and groaned and cried out and got excited. Well, maybe someone I'm preaching moan and groan, but that's because they're looking at the clock and wondering if I'm ever going to shut up. But that's not what he was looking at. He believed that that moaning, that groaning, that crying out was a work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when he was preaching and people were rolling around on the floor, which happened, and moving their hands around, he taught that this was the Holy Spirit working inside their lives. And so the work of the Holy Spirit, as he said, was a result or is seen in this emotionalism. And what Wesley did is he tied the idea of the selection of God to the elect, to an objective and emotional reaction. In other words, if you were one of those elect that John Calvin talked about, then you were going to demonstrate it through your emotions of the Holy Spirit. With Calvin, God chose you from the beginning of time, and that's how He chose you, was by your emotional reaction. Well, Wesley said that you had to have this feeling, this emotion, this excitement. And that's how you knew that you had been chosen to be saved. We understand that feelings can be very deceitful. Emotions can be very deceitful. And we need to obey from the heart what the Bible teaches, that form of doctrine, as Paul tells us in Romans. That we need to obey from the heart that form of doctrine. It has to be a part of our lives. Certainly, we, our emotions would be involved, but that's not the sign that we're saved. And that's how the ideal of emotionalism began to be incorporated in the Christian religion. There's a third individual... Charles Farham. He's not he's a little less well or not as well known as the other two. And he lived in the 19th and early 20th century. And Farham was the first to identify tongues as the biblical or Bible evidence of spirit baptism. And it's not clear when he began to preach the need for such an experience, but it is clear that he did by the 1900, by 1900. And in 1900, a group of ministers and laymen gathered for a watch night service to see when the Spirit was going to come. 
If I remember what I read on that occasion, only one person spoke out in tongues, supposed tongues. They said it sounded like Chinese. No one could verify that it was Chinese, but that's what they said it sounded like. And that's what we have today when it talks about speaking in tongues. It's really not a known language. And so people claim that they have that spirit and they claimed and it started and they started speaking in this gibberish and they claimed that it was the gift of the Holy Spirit and they claimed that they could now speak in tongues. And so in 1905, Parham established a Bible school. I read a couple of different names that he had. It was the Houston Bible School or the Bethel Bible School. And he began teaching and training people concerning tongue speaking. Now, maybe that's not too exciting to you, but to me, I thought that was kind of exciting that they had to be trained on how to speak in tongues. Now, on the day of Pentecost, when we see what was read for us, when the Spirit descended upon them, they all spoke in tongues. Known languages. They didn't have to go to school to learn it. It was a miraculous measure that we see from the Holy Spirit. Well, he began teaching and training people concerning tongue speakings. And in 1906, one of the graduates, a man by the name of J. Seymour, began meetings in Los Angeles, which lasted for three years. And during those meetings, a lot of other preachers from different denominations were trained in this doctrine of speaking in tongues, this so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit, which they claim manifested in their speaking in tongues. Even today, Pentecostal ministers are trained to do this. Those people who are graduates of that Bible school and who attended these training missions or meetings went everywhere establishing what we know as the Pentecostal churches. During those times, mainly in the south and poorer regions of that area, the Assemblies of God, the Churches of God, the United Pentecostal Churches, the Nazarene Holiness, all of these groups started at that time. A key event took place in the 1950s and 1960s during those two decades. And up until 1950, this movement was mostly in the rural south, in the poor sections. But in the 50s and 60s, something else happened. Oral Roberts. And I'm sure many of you know who Oral Roberts is. He was instrumental in founding and finding the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship, an organization that is in the forefront of the charismatic movement in the 60s. Now, Mr. Roberts did something that was different. He spread the movement on television. He added the old tent revival atmosphere, and he added to that also faith healing. He mixed the package together, and you can see the impact that he had on American religion in the first half of the 20th century. Then in the 60s, Catholics got on the bandwagon, and they called the phenomenon the charismatic movement. And from the Greek word karesi, which means gift, and legitimize the idea even among Catholics. Today, aside from those churches which call themselves Pentecostal, 
The teaching concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit expressed as speaking in tongues is found in almost every Protestant denomination. There's the history of how modern day speaking in tongues came about. Four steps. Let me give you a summary of the doctrine. Doctrine doesn't appear overnight. A false doctrine, an incorrect doctrine, a misunderstood doctrine is the result of several teachings that over time tend to melt together and create a new idea. There are four steps that it takes to get the religious world to the point that they believe that speaking in tongues is possible today. The first step began with Calvin and Wesley, the idea that God selects from the beginning those who are going to be saved and those who are going to be lost. That's the key idea that started all of this. That you have no choice in the matter. And then the second point is that this I this then then they add the idea that makes they, they make this selection or God makes this selection through the Holy Spirit. In other words, through some emotionalism, some feeling, some event, and then they go on to say, through the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues is proof that God has selected you. And that's the third point, which is confirmation. That the Holy Spirit confirms that this person has been chosen, that they are the elect chosen by God. And somewhere in the 18th and 19th century, that's where the evangelical and Pentecostal split took place. The evangelical said that the way you know you have the Holy Spirit is that you do good acts and so on and so forth. The Pentecostal said no. The way you know you have the Holy Spirit is because you can start speaking in tongues. And then the signs that accompany this baptism of the Holy Spirit are either tongue speaking or purity of life or a tremendous amount of love. Now this doctrine here that the the baptism of the Holy Spirit expressed in speaking in tongues is the reason why in the evangelical and the Pentecostal world They will not baptize people who have not spoken in tongues or who have not given up all worldly habits or who have not made a dramatic change in their life. Maybe you know some that are a part of the evangelical churches. Many times they wait for someone before they'll baptize. They'll wait on that individual and they wait to see if that person... is committed or, committed or has done something good. Sometimes they even have a committee. And that committee will look at that individual before they're baptized to make sure that they've made life-changing decisions in their life. That they've given up smoking or they've given up drinking or they've given up this or they've given up that. And many times they have to have an experience that something has happened to show that they are the elect before they can even be baptized. Or they have to stand up and tell a testimony of what has happened and transpired in their life before they can become a member of that church. You see, they want to make sure that, that, that you show a sign of a person who has been chosen because baptism is just a symbol that God has chosen you. 
And so they wait. And that's what happens. Another thing that has taken place because of this doctrine is that these groups say that baptism is just a symbol. Just a symbol. It's a symbol of something that's already taken place. It's just an outward showing. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. Now, what is that gift? That gift is the, is the Holy Spirit's gift of salvation. It's the gift that we have, the, the payment in earnest, so to speak, that, that Paul talks about, that the Holy Spirit gives us. It's the promise that we will be saved if we continue to be faithful. Remember last week we talked about you don't just take one verse. I can pick a verse out of the Scripture and say this is what I need to do in order to be saved, but you need to look at the entire picture. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. And so just like you'll find verses of Scripture that says believe and you'll be saved, I can find passages of Scripture that says be baptized and you'll be saved. Does that mean one's more important than the other? No, that means they're both important. They're both things that we need to do in order to be saved. It's not just a symbol. But they say that that symbol just confirms your election and it's not an obedient faith, which is what the Bible teaches. And that's where we differ. That's why we're different than those that are out there proclaiming this false teaching. Because we believe that Baptism is essential. We believe that salvation is for everyone. Anybody can come to God through obedience of faith and be saved. Jesus came into this world to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come into the world to seek and to save those that were already saved. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And a most popular verse of Scripture is John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever, what's that mean? It's for everyone. His Son came to this earth for all people. He died for all people. And when we believe on Him, we'll be saved. Well, what does that belief mean? It means that I'm going to believe what He tells me that I must do in order to be saved. And Jesus plainly tells us what we need to do in order to be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 15, and 16. You see, God doesn't choose some to be lost and some to be saved. He invites everyone to come and be saved. All those who believe and repent and are baptized they can be saved. And that's the reason why the churches of Christ grew so rapidly in the United States because of that message. People sometimes say, well, it's because we were debating back in those days. We were, we were more uh, book, chapter, and verse kind of people. Yeah, we were. And I think that we've suffered because we're not so much a book, chapter, and verse people today. I remember when people would knock on the door and they were from some denomination and they found out that you were from the Church of Christ. Guess what? 
Their eyes got big and they were ready to go. Did they not care if I was saved or not? No, they knew that usually a Church of Christ member knew their Bible. They knew what was being taught in God's Word. And when we tell people that anyone can be saved, that's what the Bible says. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, everyone can come to Christ. There was no choosing. And then because of this doctrine, this is why most Pentecostal churches and charismatic churches, the the whole focus of teaching and worship and fellowship and security in Christ is based upon speaking in tongues. It's all about speaking in tongues. It's all about getting you to speak in tongues and to keep speaking in tongues and figuring out who can speak in tongues because that's the sign that you're actually saved. That's why the focus is on that kind of stuff. And so we need to understand that there are some dangers because of this phenomenon, because of this thing, this false teaching, this false understanding. There's dangers. We don't want to get caught up in those things. And so let's finish out here looking at some of the dangers that we have when we believe in modern day speaking in tongues. One of the problems is that we reject what the Bible teaches. If you accept that you can speak in tongues, then you're rejecting other things that the Bible teaches. Do you remember what I said about the about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? When you look at the Bible, look at what it says. I want you to pay close attention to the verses that we're going to look at because I believe there's a very big difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism with the Holy Spirit. When you look at Acts chapter 1, we look in verse 5, it says, And John, this is Jesus talking, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with, with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And then in verse 8 we see in Jesus where it says, "...but ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto Me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth." Now you may look at those two words, the baptism of or the baptism with, and you may say, well, what's the difference? Well, there's a big difference. Because they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, the baptism with the Holy Spirit was a baptism that enabled the apostles to speak in tongues, to do miracles, and to do signs, and to heal people, and do all of those miraculous things. That was the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that just, was just for the apostles on that occasion. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3-6, through 6, He says, "...endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all." Now I ask you about that one baptism. Notice there's only one baptism. There's not two baptisms. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and baptism in water. So what baptism is he talking about? Well, I believe that the baptism of the Spirit, the baptism that the Spirit would command people to do, is the baptism in water. 
And that's really the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not with the Holy Spirit, but of. This is what the Holy Spirit wrote in the Scripture. This is what the Holy Spirit guided people to teach. And this is what they did. And so the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, are all going to say, baptism is the baptism in water. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of of Christ, and the baptism that God has commanded. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commands the people to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of their sins. And that's the baptism that the Holy Spirit commands. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You see, when you confess Christ and you're immersed in water and your sins are forgiven, you have just received the baptism that the Holy Spirit commanded you to have in order to be saved. You do it. It's just that simple. And we receive that promise that we will be saved. That's salvation. That's what we get. That payment in earnest. The guarantee that the Holy Spirit holds for us that we will be saved if we continue to live a faithful life. It also causes us to reject the teachings that are very easily to see in the Scripture about these gifts would cease. In 1 Corinthians 13, chapter beginning in verse 8, Paul says here that, this, that tongues will cease. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, beginning, it says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. What was the purpose of tongues? Well, if you come back tonight, we're going to see some of those things because we're going to see on the day of Pentecost when they spoke in tongues, people could understand in their own language. You think that that might be important? That people be able to understand what the Gospel message is when it was presented on the day of Pentecost? It was something new. And so the Holy Spirit guided them We know that the Holy Spirit guided them in what they said. How do we know that? Because Jesus said that was the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. That He would guide them in all truth. Bring to their remembrance the things that He taught. All of those things are important. So those gift of tongues is going to cease. When? When that which is perfect is come. What's that perfect? It's the Word of God. When we have the Word of God, there's no longer a need for the confirmation of that Word. We have that which is perfect. And so there's no need for miraculous knowledge. There's no need for prophesying. Speaking God's Word, that's what prophesying was. There's no need for that afterwards. You're not going to find any real prophets today. You'll find people that claim to be a prophet. But even some of those that claim to be prophets have made their predictions and have to change their predictions multiple times. Back in the Old Testament, that's how you knew if there was a prophet that the prophet was true is if what he said was came to pass. 
Third point, placing power, your place on the power of salvation in the wrong things. It causes you to place the power of salvation in signs and wonders and not in the gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. How do I know that I'm saved? Because I obeyed the gospel. Not because some event took place in my life. Not because I had a feeling. Not because there was some experience. I know what I did. I obeyed the gospel. I did exactly what the Bible says. And people think that the ability to speak in tongues, that that's what saves them. That's not what saves them. It's the blood of Christ that we come in contact with when we go down in that water and we come up out of that water. It's simple obedience is what saves us today. Fourth point, it causes people to reject the proper response of salvation. If someone says, how do you know you're saved? What would your answer be? If somebody asked you this very moment, are you saved? And you said, yes, how do you know? How do you know you're saved? I'll tell you how I know I was saved. Because many, many, many moons ago, I repented of my sins, confessed the name of Christ, and was buried with my Lord in baptism. I can still remember the event. I can remember the day. I remember the time. I can even remember who all was around. I did what the Bible says one must do in order to be saved. And that should give us great confidence when we've done what the Bible said, not based upon some feeling. I'll refer you back to Jacob. When he heard that Joseph had been killed by a wild beast, he mourned, he was upset, he was sad, he grieved, and he wasn't the same from then on out. And guess what? He believed a lie. His son Joseph wasn't dead. His son had been sold into slavery. And at one point he rose to second in in command to only Pharaoh. But yet he was still mourning. He believed a lie. And you see the emotional experience that he had from believing that lie. Emotions don't determine whether we're saved. Feelings don't determine whether we're saved. Obedience is what determines if we're saved. It causes one to claim false gifts. I mean, that's a that's a whole other lesson. But we don't we don't we know those things don't exist. We don't heal people today. Oh yeah, I've, I've been in places where people claim that they were healing people, and I watched those individuals after the show was over. And I do say show, and I mean to use that word. After the show was over, those that limped in, that got healed, limped out after the show was over. Oh, they got emotionally pumped up and they ran up and down the aisle. They did all of those things, but guess what? They limped out of there. And everything that I saw healed was something that you couldn't see that they really had. Acts chapter 3, when you see Peter and John, they run into that individual who was lame. 
When he said, Silver and gold have I none, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What did he do? He got up and he walked. He leaped. It didn't take a long process. There was no doubt that that individual was lame. He was. And you see that with every miracle that was performed in the New Testament. That it was a miracle because it defies the odds of the laws of nature. It wasn't something smoke and mirrors. It wasn't something internal. It was a real miracle. I don't say that because I want to pick on people. I say that because what I see in the Bible is miracles. What I see on television, what I have witnessed with my own eyes, isn't a miracle. I had some lady tell me she raised somebody from the dead. I said, really? Yes, I did. I didn't know that they were dead at the time. Well, then how do you know you raised them from the dead? No answer. Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead for four days. In fact, his sister said, this is what a sister would say, Lord, he stinks. He stinketh. He's been dead for four days. What did Jesus say? Roll the stone away. Remove it. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus came forth. In other occasions where people were raised from the dead, people laughed at the individual. They laughed at Peter. They laughed at Jesus when He said, I'm going to raise them up. They're not dead. They laughed at Him. They made fun of Him. But what happened? When they they rose from the dead, they were astonished. They were amazed. Why? Because it was a miracle. You don't see that today. You're not going to see that today. It's not because we have a lack of faith. But we know that those things were done to confirm the Word and that Word's been confirmed and we have that Word and there's no longer a need to confirm it. You either accept it or you reject it. And finally, it can cause us to be lost. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. Jesus rejects those who claim prophecy and miracles. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns and figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewed down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in Thy name, and in Thy name cast out devils, and in Thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquities. What did He say there in verse 22? Many will say unto me, 
in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? You think they thought they prophesied? Sure they did. And in Thy name cast out devils? And in Thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you depart from Me, ye that work iniquities. Why didn't He know them? Because they did not come to Him according to His Word. He only knows the one who comes to Him according to His Word. Now you think about it. If all of those things that they say, speaking in tongues and all this other stuff is a sign that you're saved, then tell me, why weren't those individuals right there saved? They were lost. Depart from me, I never knew you. That doesn't sound like, hey, come on in. That sounds like, go away. And where were they going away to? A devil's hell. Does it give me joy to say that? No. Because I believe that there's a lot of people that are sincere, but they've been deceived, they've been tricked. And that's a question that Paul asked to the Galatian brethren. Who hath bewitched you? Who hath tricked you into believing this false lie? Brethren, we need to be able to stand up for the truth. And we should never be ashamed of what the Bible says. And we should, as Christians, read it and study it and put it in our hearts so that we can study or we can share that good news with people that sometimes get caught up in some of these things. And as I said at the beginning of the lesson, I hope you come back tonight and listen to the verses and what the Bible says about this phenomenon, this ability to speak in tongues. And you'll see that what happens today is not what took place in the first century. I invite you to, do, to respond to the invitation this morning if you're not a child of God. Because Jesus tells us what we need to do in order to be saved. He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He told us in Matthew to go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. You teach and when they accept that message, when they obey, they want to obey the Gospel, they are buried with our Lord in baptism. And if you have not done that, you are in a lost condition today. Because that's what the Bible, God's Word says, we must do in order to be saved. If you haven't done that, you have an opportunity to do that this morning. Maybe you haven't lived as you should. We want to encourage you to, to, to live right. Because we know that we have to be faithful while we're here on this earth. And that's one of the conditions that the Lord tells us that we need to continue to, to live that faithful life. And maybe you haven't done so and you need our prayers. We're here to help you in any way that we can. You have the opportunity to respond to the invitation. Well, together we stand to sing. What can walk?